This morning comes from Philippians chapter 2. We have Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. As we're continuing on our, our Christmas Advent series, that is God is with us. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. If you don't have your copy of God's Word with you this morning, you'll find it printed for you in the bulletin. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I'm about to read to you is God's Word. So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and in every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And thus far in God's holy, perfect, powerful word, let's pray and ask that he might bless the reading, the hearing, and the teaching of it now. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your son Jesus, for being able to celebrate that God is truly with us as he was born uh, and took on flesh for us. So Lord, help us now send your spirit to let us see what that means, the implications of that for the rest of our lives. Would you unclog ears, open our eyes, soften hearts, so that we may be changed to look more like your son in whose name we pray. Amen. So have you, ever, have you ever seen the novelty license plate that says house divided? And then there's a picture of like two opposing teams, you know, the Clemson paw thing and, and the Gamecock. And have you ever seen these and wonder, I wonder what game day is like, how they get towards each other. Now recently it's been pretty much, you know, there's nothing really to argue for with the Gamecocks, but it's, that's changing. Um, but have you ever felt divided? Like really divided? Divided with someone or a group. And you, ask, you, you start wondering, what, what do you do to heal that? Where do you go? How do you even begin to heal division? Throughout Paul's ministry, he probably addressed this problem time after time. And, and in the scriptures, we have two churches, two places that he actually writes letters to to address division in the church and around the church. One is, is Corinth. The other is Philippi, which is why he writes to the Philippians here. And what he says here to the Philippians is unlike any strategy you might, you might see in how to mend division, it's unlike any strategy you might see in a, in a, in a management book or a leadership seminar. Now, he says to them, if you are a believer, if you are in Christ Jesus, you are connected. There is a union, and that union you have with Christ has far-reaching implications. Your union unites you to live differently. That union, it brings unity, 
so that you may die to self and be given something better. So that's where we're headed this morning. Those are your three points. Unity, that, to die for something greater. All right, so let's start by looking at this idea of unity. You see it in the first four verses, uh, that union brings unity. And as you look there, we just need a bit of a context of where we are in Philippians. We're kind of parachuting in. So what is happening? Well, first, there's conflict and division. If you have a Bible, look at the end of chapter 1. You see, we have it in our, our call to confession. Uh, starting in verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God, for it has been granted to you that, to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now I hear that I still have. Okay, so we see this conflict that is happening, and that's happening outside of the church. That is happening from opponents uh, trying to divide the church from the outside in. And Paul says that they are to stand unified. Look at there, it says, one spirit, one mind. Side by side. That's a pretty big indication of you need to be unified together for the faith of the gospel. That's not the only division we see in Philippians. In fact, the rest of the the book goes on to talk about the division that's inside the church. If you have a Bible, go to chapter 4. Look at verses 2 and 3. He says, I entreat Judea and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. There's division there. He's saying, I, I entreat you. I, I want you to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. What's interesting about this letter is that most, if, most of this, uh, this letter is written and geared towards the vision that occurs inside the church. The need for unity within the church. Why is that? Well, because the church is this bride. It's not made up of brides. How easy it is for unity to happen to those with how division. How easy it is for division to happen with those who you are most close to, most connected to. So, how do we find unity? We'll look at the beginning of verse two in our text. Paul says, "Make my joy complete." Paul, Paul's joy, his rejoicing, it is a theme throughout uh, this letter. He says rejoice and joy constantly. And when he uses the term, it is often alongside of union or participation with Jesus and brothers and sisters in Christ. Just consider looking at chapter 1. He says, I thank my God always for you all making my prayer in joy. Why? Because of your participation in the gospel. He says, I will rejoice. Why? For I know that through your prayers and help of the Spirit, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. One thing we can gain from this is realizing that here is a joy, there is a joy in unity with one another. There's a joy in being united. Paul finds joy in seeing God at work in the church. Now consider this. Where is Paul writing this letter from? Prison. 
What does joy look like for Paul in prison? Does it have to be this, like, when we think of joy and rejoicing, do we think of, like, singing and dancing and happy Christmas songs? No. What is this about Paul's joy? It's an encouragement to him. He is thanking God for the way he is at work in this church, that he would use the work of Paul to plant this church in Acts 16, and God is still at work in it. How encouraging that must have been for him. And so he rejoices that God is true when he says, I'm going to expand my kingdom, and I'm going to use you. That he brings people to himself. He finds joy in other people's love and life for the Lord. And it makes me ask, is there joy in my life in seeing how God is at work and how he is dwelling with other believers. You ever wonder that? Is there joy in knowing other believers are worshiping Jesus even today? Do I have joy knowing and seeing other believers not only proclaim their faith but live it out? Because here's where I, here's where I go. I, I tend to find faults with my other brothers and sisters in Christ and think I'm doing it better. Where's my joy at? One of my professors, professor, he asked this question about this, using this text, and it really cuts at my heart. Have we lost the fundamental Christian perspective of joy? That joy in being united, it is a gift from the Lord. Have we lost that ability to find encouragement through others' love of Jesus? When you think about that, and you think about the Philippians, what they're going through, we, we realize we're not that different from them, are we? That we need to be reminded that we are to rejoice with believers, to be encouraged. Even with those who don't exactly hold the same views as we do, may we be able to say with Paul only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in that I rejoice. This also makes me ask, do I bring joy to other believers in the way I live and love the Lord? Does our life reflect a living out of the gospel that brings joy to others spiritually. Is there joy? There has to be joy in unity. But what else? Well, there's oneness. Oneness in what? Well, look at, verse, look at the rest of verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Those are four statements that pretty much say the same thing, don't they? Paul says this to the Corinthian church that he longs for them to be united in mind and in judgment. You ever notice that most churches have the same uh, mission statement? It doesn't really matter where you go in evangelicalism. Most churches have the same mission statement. Is it because they're lazy? No. We might use a different scripture verse, but most churches want to make disciples and go out into the world to make disciples and grow the kingdom. There is a oneness there in that mind. In fact, we recited a creed this morning, the Nicene Creed, a statement of faith that different denominations state and point to as the key truths of their faith, something written in 325 that we said in 2021. There's oneness there that states this is what we believe. And this is why we live a certain way. This is our hope. Now we can have our distinctives. 
and what exactly we believe. But isn't it incredible that the spirit and truth of God is able to unite people from thousands of years through his word? He unites us over some pretty incredible truths. That the outside world looks at those truths and thinks, those are insane. That God came down from heaven, that there is a God in in the beginning, and that he comes down and becomes a man and he dwells with, with us. Why? For us and for our salvation. That's crazy. That he was born of a virgin. What's wrong with you people? That God died and then he rose again y'all we are not united together in a oneness over these beautiful truths but this oneness that unifies it causes us not to not only believe differently than the world it calls us to live differently too that's what we see paul urging the philippians towards in verses three and four there's joy there's oneness and that oneness causes us to what well, it's a word that in the Greek is translated as humility. Unity comes through a people committed to humility. Humility first, by Paul defines in terms of what it is not. Look at verse 3. Humility is not selfishness and conceit. Now, I love the word that is used there to describe, uh, is translated, used to describe selfish conceit. It's, it's someone who desires and chases empty glory. That's That's incredible. Empty glory. Paul gives us more than what humility is not. He shows us also what a uniting humility looks like. He says, count others more significant than yourselves and let each of you look not only to his own interest but also to the interest of others. Paul writes the same thing to that other church going through division as well. In Corinth, he writes, let no one seek his own good but the good of his neighbor. Now, I, I read this. And I don't think we can gloss over this without being challenged with this question. Do I value others so much so that I would give up my own wants, my own rights, my own desires for the sake of counting them more significant than myself? Do I love people that much? Do I? That, that word empty glory, chasing empty glory, that really comes to mind. I, I, all too often I find myself chasing empty glory. And that is true for all of us here this morning, no matter if you're a believer or not. There is something in us that wants to worship. We were made and created to be worshipers. And without the Spirit of God opening our eyes to see the beauty of God, we will find stuff to worship, won't we? And my eyes have been open. I still try to find things to worship. We're watching a Netflix documentary called 14 Peaks. It's this man who desires to summit 14 peaks over 8,000 meters tall. Why? First of all, I don't know why. It's crazy. But he has these answers. It's about showing things are possible by climbing. Okay. I'm going to raise awareness. Okay. But really, does it really accomplish that? He's chasing something. We can point to him and say, he's chasing something. But y'all, I can point to myself and say, look at those things. He's chasing something too. What is it that you chase that's full of empty glory? 
So if that's our condition, to chase empty glory, how in the world can I want to serve like Paul calls us to serve in verses 3 and 4? How do we do it? It all comes back to the idea of God with us. Look at verse 1. And these four statements, these are realities for those who proclaim faith in Jesus. You see this if and any, those are like sense or if. Those are statements here. First, if or since there is any encouragement in Christ. If there's any encouragement in Christ. What does it mean to be in Christ? To be in Christ? It means you've been called, doesn't it? called out of darkness into light. It means you are now a new creation. And now you have freedom from the chains of sin and bondage of shame. Is that encouraging to you? You have that? Because you're in Christ? Since or if there is any comfort, if there's any comfort from his love, what is his love? What is it to be loved by God? He loved you so much that what? He sends his son to earth to die for you. Isn't that comforting? In those times when you feel unlovable, that no one loves you, you feel unwanted? No, God died for you. Since or if there is any participation in the Spirit. Since or if there is any affection and sympathy. That is to say, since the Spirit of Jesus does dwell in the hearts of His people and unites you. Since Jesus is gentle and lowly. Do you see that Paul is saying that he is pleading? If these things are true, if any of them are true... That Jesus has done these things. Not only does it bring me joy as I'm in prison, it encourages me, but it means that God is within you, dwelling in you, dwelling in us. If those things are true, we are in Christ. And y'all, that is power. That is what allows us to follow him and serve him in the way verses 3 and 4 call us to. It calls us, if you're in Christ, that gives you power even in the way of dying to self. Let's see what that means. Let's look at this union that allows us to die to self. It's second point, verses 5 through 8. We start with Paul giving us this bridge in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, before we go any further... Here's the caveat here. I want to make it clear that Paul is not saying, just act like this and everything's going to be great. Just act like Jesus. Just die to yourself, die to yourself, act like Jesus. Everything will be great. No, you can't do that. Do that on your own. You don't have the power to do that and sustain it without just killing everybody around you. Paul is saying, if you want this unity, you must dive deep into your union with Christ. That's the only way you're going to do these things. Dive deep into your union with Christ who did what? In the ultimate form of humility, we see in verses 6 through 8, we see three verbs. Three verbs highlight this section, and and it's going to make it really simple for us to follow. Make, take, became, or become. Okay? Make, take, become. First, look at verse 6. How do do we die? How does this union allow us to die? Verse 6. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. 
Jesus, uh, he was in perfect relationship with God the Father and God the Spirit. I want us to remember this. God was in a perfect relationship with the triune God. He wanted for nothing. It's perfect. And yet, his love for his children was so much so, he leaves that. Can you imagine leaving perfection for us? That word emptied himself, it is translated, it is literally this, made himself nothing. There's your make. The one who was ultimate, who was everything, makes himself nothing. He makes himself nothing, he gives up everything. Leaves ultimate perfection. He, the creator of the world, came into the world to redeem the creatures of the world and the world itself. And he comes, how? Taking the form of a servant. A servant to the world in which he created. A servant to all the rules and regulations, just of like, hey, the law of physics. He submits himself as a servant to everything, but also a servant to those who would curse him. He takes the form of a servant to serve those who would doubt him. He takes the form of a servant to serve those who would kill him. And how does he serve them? How? Verse 8, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Take, make, become. Obedient to the point of death on a cross, he subjects himself to the most humiliating thing possible. The God who made creation takes on flesh and allows his creation creation to kill him. Why? That you and I might be redeemed and reconciled to him. That we might one day have that perfect relationship with him in glory. He redeemed us from our sin and our shame and living under the curse that fell on us through Adam. And here's something I think is really interesting. This passage shows us how Jesus, he has come to reverse what Adam has done. Do you remember Adam? Remember Adam in the garden? How he grasped at being equal with God? Where in the garden the serpent said, he doesn't want you to eat of it. Why? Why do you not want... Does it, why? Do why? you remember? If you eat of it, you'll be like him. You'll be equals. And so Adam, he grasped at it. Jesus did not equal, count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Adam did. And so he grasps in order to make himself like God so he could rule. Make himself something where Jesus makes himself nothing. Adam's grasping to be like God brings about death. Jesus makes himself nothing so that he can become obedient to the uttermost fully to the point of death to bring about life. Isn't that interesting? Y'all, Jesus is not just the better, better Adam, though. No, he has redeemed us from the curse that Adam brought into the world. He has freed us to not have to grasp after the things that bring empty glory. We no longer have to fight against trying to grasp to make ourselves something. We no longer have to fight against taking the form of a servant for the fear of being found weak and useless. 
No, we can embrace those things. Because the power of being seen weak, the power of shame and sin that the devil uses over us to try to rule us, that has been broken for us by Jesus, who makes us his, who makes us heirs with him. And so we can sing the words of joy to the world, no more let sins and sorrows grow, no more will they grow, nor thorns infest the ground. No, he has freed us from this. And now what? He comes to make his blessings flow. Where? Far as the curse is found. All creation. Think about that. How is he going to do that? By his taking, making, and becoming. He has reversed the curse of Adam in us. And now, through our union with him, he uses us to serve with freedom the kingdom of God. To bring about the kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let's close this morning by looking at how that union calls us to die. But in doing that, we are given something far better than we could ever dream. Let's look at that. There we go. The first thing we see here in verse 9 is therefore, and we have to ask ourselves, what is that therefore, therefore? That's so clever, isn't it? Uh, what is the therefore, therefore? In this case, it's saying because of that humiliation found in 5 through 8, because God made himself nothing and taking on flesh and becoming a servant, becoming obedient to the point of death, well then what? Because of this, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name. Okay, so we could probably figure out what the word exalt means. Exalt is to raise something up, to place an honor on someone or something. We exalt champions, don't we? Where has God exalted Jesus to? What does it say? The highest of places. The highest place. But what about that word bestow? We don't tend to use the word bestow in our everyday conversations, do we? To bestow means to give. God bestows on Jesus a name. He gives Jesus a name. And it's not just any name. It is a name above every other name. But what is that name? We'll look at verse 11. And we see that the name is Lord. A name that we see thousands of times throughout the Bible, don't we? What makes that name, what makes bestowing the name Lord so special? I mean, his disciples called him Lord. We see Lord all over the Old Testament. Well, the bestowing of a name, it's actually very important. Historical scholars write that the name of a person can have the sense of a title that is rightfully born and encodes what a person really is. Encodes. Hmm. And in the ancient Near East, the sense of title applies especially to the divine names that express qualities and powers. Now, all right, what does that mean with this encoding? Naming implies something. Think of the incarnation. The angel visits Mary and says, you shall call him whatever you want. No, God has given the name Jesus, and that means what? Savior. 
And now we have this declaration, this giving of a name, and it's Lord. And that go back to the Old Testament, where Lord is used in the place of a name all over the Old Testament. What was that replacement there? Yahweh. The name that was never to be spoken out of a reverence and awe and fear, and in its place, Lord was used. Now that's the name God is using to declare who he is to his people. Think of this for Isaiah 45. You probably have it memorized. That's a joke. Isaiah 45, he says, I am the Lord, there is no other. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, and the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. And now, God has bestowed on Jesus that name, Lord. This one who made himself nothing has become Lord. And all will bow and confess that this one who took on flesh and became a servant to the point of death, he is exalted above all. He is raised from death to exaltation. And now we can sing, He rules the world with truth and grace. And He makes the nations prove the glories of His righteousness and wonders of His love. That song, Joy to the World, it's influenced by Psalm 98, a psalm that's main idea was that we are to exalt and praise the Lord above all things. That we are to worship what is truly exalted. And it makes us ask, do we do that? What is the thing that we exalt? Do we exalt ideas or things? We exalt the idea of influence, success. Do you know what unites us? Exalting together the same thing. You know what divides us? Exalting what we want. Yet, what does God call us to do? Exalt that God dwells with us. Exalt that he has come to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found and that the greatest blessing that those in union with Christ have is this, that he has bestowed on you and on me the name of his. Y'all, the Lord, the one exalted above every other, gives you his family name. Why did he give you his family name other than he loves you? But why else? Why did the king give you his name? Well, Paul tells us that he exalted himself, that the exalted gave himself so that we might find life, life eternal in him. That believers are united in that truth and union. And so the question is, what do you do with that? What does that union do? What do we see Jesus do in Philippians 2? But he brings himself low so that others might live. Well, there's another passage that shows Jesus humbling himself in a very degrading way. But also in a way that shows us he really came to be a servant. It's in John 13. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to John 13. It starts in chapter 1. In chapter 13, verse 1. I think this connects the point of God calls us to serve his kingdom. And you can't serve his kingdom 
until you accept the fact that you are in union with him and only his spirit can, call, can give you the power to do these things. Look at John 13, and I'll close with this. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He, who was everything, took and became a servant. But when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garment, he resumed his place. He resumed his place of exaltation. And he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor a messenger greater than the one who has sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So I pray the Lord might give us the courage and the faith that we might trust that God is with us so that we may die knowing that he has given us and serve his kingdom. Let's pray. O Lord, our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you unite us together in the glorious truth of the gospel, that glorious truth of unity and oneness, that you have come to give us your name, that you have took on flesh, you made yourself nothing, you became obedient to the point of death, and now you're highly exalted. And you do those things for us for your love for us, and you change us by it, that we might sing and proclaim with great hope and joy that you're reversing the curse as far as that curse is found. So no more will those sorrows grow. Oh, Lord, would you remind us of your truth, and would you call us to die to self, knowing that you have given us your spirit to serve you. Give us that courage. Give us that strength through you, through our union with you, you who dwell in us, Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.